All right, amen. Let's take out our Bibles and let's uh, read the word of the Lord from John chapter 11. John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might, re might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Sends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your name. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word. Lord, now as your word is opened and proclaimed, we pray that you would send your spirit to do what only you can. Lord, I pray that this sermon would impact hearts and minds far beyond what the skill of the preacher would uh, call for or what would normally be done. Lord, we know that it is only your spirit that can cause this to be worthwhile. Uh, it is only your spirit that can cause us to discern these truths, for these things are spiritually discerned. Lord, we know that apart from your work, it would simply be seed landing on rocky soil, hitting rocky hearts landing upon deaf ears. And so we pray that your spirit would move now to open up ears, eyes, hearts, and minds. Lord, we pray that you would do far more, far abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Lord, that you would cause this word to sink in and to produce a, a harvest. Lord, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that you would be glorified, and that your people would be edified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we continue our series in John. Uh, picking up where we left off in chapter 11. As we've been covering the last number of weeks, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, 
And as we'll see this morning here shortly, this was the tipping point. It was this event that led to the final decision now from the ruling council of the Jews that Jesus needed to be put to death. So let's dive right in. Chapter 11, John 11, 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, remember, this one had not been a private miracle. You know, some of the times Jesus would heal somebody, he would say, now, keep this to yourself. Don't go and tell everyone. Uh, But this one, he did not attempt to keep a secret. Jesus raised Lazarus in public. Jesus raised Lazarus with a crowd watching. Remember those mourners who had come from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha. There was a crowd of them who had followed Mary out from the house when she went to meet Jesus who had then followed them both to the tomb. And there was a crowd, therefore, that had eyewitnessed this miracle. And so as a result, we now get a little bit of an insight into how the crowd responded. Those who had seen this miracle take place, John tells us, many of them believed in him. Now, if this was true and genuine faith, then what we see is that there were actually multiple miracles performed that day. In as many of these as were genuine conversions, God used the physical raising of Lazarus from the dead as the occasion by which he brought dead sinners to life. As Lazarus was physically regenerated, given new life, so too were these bystanders raised to spiritual life. Having witnessed the resurrection power of Jesus on display, they believed but not all of them. Verse 46 says, Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Many of the eyewitnesses had believed in Christ, But some went and reported what had happened to the Pharisees. The Pharisees then met with the chief priests, uh, who would have been Sadducees, by the way, which is why we keep hearing Pharisees and chief priests throughout this uh, this section. Uh, The Pharisees met with the chief priests, and they discussed their problem. The miracles that Jesus had been performing had been gaining him notoriety. He was gaining more and more followers. If he is allowed to continue, their fear is that everyone would believe in him. In Greek, it's all, that all will believe. As a quick side note, we just observed that when they said all, they clearly did not mean every person who had ever lived without exception. Let the reader understand. The response of the chief priests and Pharisees shows us something remarkable as well about unbelief. Notice again, the issue of their unbelief is not a lack of evidence. Now, I remember myself as a boy reading about the miracles in the Gospels and in Acts and thinking that, man, if I could just perform a miracle like the apostles did, then all of my classmates would believe in Jesus. But notice here, after the failed attempt of the Pharisees to debunk the miraculous healing of the man born blind, from John 9, they don't even actually try to deny this one. The evidence was too strong. You had a multitude of eyewitnesses who knew that Lazarus had been dead. Not only that, but dead for four days, sealed in a tomb. And all these witnesses had seen Jesus as he called for the stone to be rolled aside and then watched as the man who had been dead staggered out of the tomb alive in his grave clothes, at the command of Christ. So it's interesting, they don't even try to deny this one. And we see as as well, Lazarus didn't go anywhere, right? From all accounts, he just went back to living his life in Bethany. Now we'll jump ahead briefly, Uh, we'll take that section out of order here, and we can look with me at John 12, verse 9. Jesus came to Bethany for a meal in his honor, and Lazarus was there. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, 
They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now catch this. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. We have no indication that the chief priests doubted or tried to deny this miracle. They seem forced to acknowledge that Jesus really did raise Lazarus from the dead, just as they had been forced to reckon with the fact that Jesus opened the eyes of the man born blind. These were real miracles. They really took place, and people were streaming to Bethany to go and to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus, living proof of this miracle, who could testify to what had happened to him. The issue is not a lack of evidence. Remember again the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, not related. In that parable, a wealthy man and a beggar named Lazarus both die, and Lazarus goes to a place of blessing where he's being comforted at Abraham's side, and the rich man goes to a place of torment. And the rich man calls out to Abraham across this chasm that is fixed between them, and he begs for Lazarus to be sent back to warn the rich man's brothers. Abraham replies, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, your brothers, they have the scriptures. They have the Old Testament scriptures at this time. And those scriptures are sufficiently clear to warn your brothers. But the rich man replies, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham replied, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Luke 16, 31. If they will not obey God's word, if the scriptures are not enough to convince them, neither then would it matter even if they saw someone rise from the dead and come to warn them. We see that quite literally put on display with the chief priests and the Pharisees. Someone did rise from the dead. They could go to his village and see him and talk to him. But what was their response? We need to kill Lazarus too. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The problem is not that unbelievers have not been given enough data. Romans 1 says that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived through the things that have been made. Right? God has shown it to all such that people are without excuse for refusing to worship God and to thank him. They don't need more knowledge for what do they do with the knowledge they have? Romans 1.18 By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They push it down. And so we see the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is not in the mind. The problem is in the heart. It is a moral issue, not an intellectual one. Someone can rise from the dead and it won't matter. If hearts are not changed, all the evidences that we could pile up will not make someone a worshiper. It requires a work of the Spirit of God. A man must be born again, drawn by the Father. Their heart of stone must be replaced. They, like Lazarus, must be raised to life. And we ought to be encouraged. For God does raise dead sinners to life as the gospel goes forth. And so we should not lament the fact that we cannot perform miracles because we have what we need in the gospel and the spirit who does perform the miracle of regeneration as Christ's sheep hear his voice. Back to verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Remember, Israel at this time was under Roman occupation. 
Rome was the superpower of the day. They were the empire that had conquered the known world. And one of the ways in which they kept peace in their empire was by allowing conquered nations a certain degree of autonomy and self-government. The Jews had an unstable relationship with the Romans, and the rulers of the Jews, who were there by permission of the Romans, knew that their authority and their position rested on maintaining this delicate balance. And so Jesus was a dangerous figure to their fragile position. Remember again that messianic expectation was at an all-time high. The Jews were very actively looking for their Messiah to arrive. And as we saw, as they tried to take Jesus and make him king by force, many of them were expecting a Messiah who would be a great military leader and would drive the Romans from the Holy Land, delivering Israel from Roman occupation. Now, there have been a number of attempts by various figures to lead revolutions against the Romans, and each of them had been crushed, and it only further damaged the trust between the Romans and the Jewish leadership. And so the fear now of the Pharisees and chief priests may have been that the people would declare Jesus to be Messiah. Right? If we let him go on like this, the people are going to say, here's our Messiah, here is our rival king ready to challenge the authority of Caesar, uh, perhaps in open battle. If this happened, they feared that the Romans would come and once again crush this rebellion and these authorities would lose their place, their position of authority, or possibly even their temple, their special place of worship. And depending as well on how strong the reaction from the Romans was, they were worried there may not be much of a nation left when the Romans are finished. They will come and take away our place and our nation. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Neither do you understand that it is better for you that one man should perish, should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Caiaphas, the high priest, rebukes the council and declares that it would be better for them, it would be better for Jesus to die than for the entire nation to be destroyed. So they believe, or at least claim to believe, as the excuse for their scheming, that Jesus is on a path that will result in the destruction of the nation. Right? If he continues on like this, the end result will be the Romans coming and crushing us. Therefore, if he's allowed to continue on, it will spell disaster. So we must intervene. He must not be allowed to continue. He must be sacrificed for the people. His life for ours. Then we get an interesting insight. As verse 51 says that Caiaphas did not actually say this of his own accord, but had prophesied as high priest that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now we've seen it a number of times in this gospel where John uses irony and shows that people spoke better than they knew. Remember the example of the temple guards when they came back uh, empty-handed when they were sent to arrest Jesus, and they said, no one ever spoke like this man. Actually, literally, it's no human being ever spoke like this man. It's like very, very true. Truer than you know. Same thing here. John draws it out. Caiaphas, in his scheming, spoke better than he knew. And in fact, we were even told that it was a prophecy. God spoke through Caiaphas, but God meant something different by the statement than Caiaphas did. Now we see that in multiple places throughout the scriptures. Uh, Peter even tells us that the spirits of the prophets longed to look into the things of which they were prophesying. Right? They, would, they would speak of the Christ without even themselves knowing necessarily what the fulfillment would be. 
We see as well Balaam forced to prophesy truth and prophesy blessing in spite of himself. Uh, And we also see Balaam's donkey spoke to him to restrain the prophet's madness, is what Hebrews tells us. And so we have here Caiaphas speaking something, and it has meaning from God that Caiaphas himself did not intend. Right? Much like Joseph's brothers, what Caiaphas and the Jews meant for evil, God meant for good. Caiaphas and the Jews did not have the same goal in mind that God did. We see that they were simply seeking an expedient and efficient political solution. Right? We will assassinate this one man in order to guard against calamity at the hands of the Romans. So Caiaphas spoke and meant one thing, but God, being completely sovereign over Caiaphas, saw to it that his words were completely true, but in an entirely different way than what Caiaphas intended. For as believers, we cannot help but hear it. Jesus would die for God's people. Not simply as a political scapegoat, but he would die on the cross for their sins. And he would bring into one the children of God scattered abroad. Remember, as Christ had said, he had other sheep that were not of this fold. And he must bring them also. So truly, Christ died to bring salvation to true Israel which is the remnant among the Jews and the elect from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The children of God scattered abroad. And he has brought us all into one body. As Ephesians 2 says, Christ has made in himself one new man in place of the two Jews and Gentiles. So Caiaphas spoke far better than he knew. Now to add to the irony of this particular scheme, we will see that the plan of the Pharisees and chief priests backfired spectacularly. Their stated reason, remember, their stated reason for murdering Jesus was to protect the nation, to protect their place, possibly meaning the temple. So they are saying, we need to kill Jesus to preserve Jerusalem, to prevent the Romans from coming and destroying us. Now, why is that, or how did this backfire? Well, remember the parable that Jesus told of the vineyard owner and the wicked tenants. The master of that vineyard kept sending his servants to collect fruit from these tenants, but they would beat some of them, they would abuse some of them, others they would kill. Finally, the master decides, I will send my son. They will listen to my son. And those wicked tenants plotted and murdered the master's son. Jesus then asked the chief priests and the Pharisees, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to those wicked tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. We know this parable, the master is God. God had sent his servants, the prophets. Some of them they abused. Some of them they killed. Finally, God sends his one and only son. And what did they do? They murdered him. And so what did Jesus warn would be the result? God would put those wretches to a miserable end. And Matthew 21, 45 says that the chief priests and Pharisees perceived that he was talking about them. All right, so catch the irony here. The chief priests and Pharisees plot to murder Jesus for the sake of preserving Jerusalem. And Jesus had warned that it would be because they murdered the Son of God that the Master would bring destruction to the wicked tenants. Matthew 27, 25, when Pontius Pilate handed over Jesus to be crucified, Pilate ceremonially washed his hands of the matter and said, I am innocent of this innocent man's blood. You go see to it yourselves. And the Jews replied, His blood be upon us and our children. 
So just as they had abused and beaten and killed the servants, the prophets, so they abused and beat and killed the Son. And as they took the Son of God to murder him, to crucify the only perfect man to walk this earth, they declared, let his blood be on us and on our children. Now given Jesus' warning in the parable, what do you expect will follow? Judgment. And Jesus even says in Matthew 23, upon this generation will come the blood of the prophets. And truly, in 70 AD, that judgment came. The Romans came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Romans came and took away their place and their nation. What they, in their wicked scheming and maneuvering, thought was going to preserve them, right, killing Jesus, killing the Son, was in fact the very thing that brought the wrath of the Master. My friends, God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You cannot cheat God. Seeds of sin will always produce a very specific kind of harvest. It will be a harvest of corruption, and in the end will bring the judgment of God upon your head. All will stand before him and give account. Let's return to the text, verse 54. In light of this decision from the Jews, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So as a result of this decision, Jesus withdraws for the time being. No human court or human will is going to force him to his death. Both the fact of his death as well as its timing are in the hands of his father. And so to avoid being arrested prematurely, Jesus briefly withdraws from the public eye. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the arrest warrant has now gone out and the public was called upon to inform the chief priests and the Sadducees if anybody knew of his whereabouts so that they could arrest him. All right, we see anticipation is now mounting as pilgrims are streaming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Jesus is a wanted man, and the people are buzzing with anticipation, wondering now if he's going to make an appearance. And this brings us to chapter 12 and the beautiful story of Mary anointing Jesus with perfume. Now, before we get into that, I'll just mention that there is a similar story in all four gospel accounts. However, Luke's account is the one that stands apart with a number of significant differences. And so I the, believe the best explanation is that there are two different encounters here. Matthew, John, and Mark all describing the same event, uh, while Luke describes a similar but different encounter. And you can compare those accounts if you want to see the differences. But chapter 12 begins with a very dramatic contrast. Having witnessed or heard of this miracle of Christ, the chief priests and Pharisees conclude that Jesus needed to be stopped. He needed to be opposed. He needed to be put to death. Right? That's their response to this miracle, their response to Jesus. Now we move on and see a very, very different response. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. At table. Jesus returned to the village of Lazarus, and he and his disciples retreated to a dinner. And we are told that Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. And here we'll pause just to note the fact that John's priority in writing is laser-focused in on Jesus, right? On, uh, on who he is and on how we are to respond to Christ. Now, why do I say that? Well, just think of this setting. 
Think, think of what this is, right? Jesus and his disciples, the Apostle John included, are now having dinner with the man whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Right? You're chatting, you're hanging out, you're having this evening together. Do you think it might have crossed their minds to ask Lazarus what that four days had been like between his death and resurrection? I'm thinking so. Right? Assuming God didn't just mercifully wipe Lazarus's memory, which he may have done. Um, right? You have Lazarus here. If, if you are somebody who has trouble carrying conversation at a dinner party, Lazarus is your man, right? Invite him over. He's got a topic for you. And yet we see in John's gospel that John doesn't give us even a sniff of an answer to the very many questions that I, for one, would be asking Lazarus. And so we see John did not write in order to satisfy our many curiosities, John, as he said, wrote so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. John's point in telling of the resurrection of Lazarus is not to tell you everything about heaven and, and what happened with Lazarus there. The point is that you would see the resurrection power of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And John does not get sidetracked from that goal. We also simply must be content that what we have in Scripture is what God wants us to have. Right? What we have is sufficient. By it, we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.17 The fact is, God has not seen fit to unveil all possible mysteries. He has not seen to give us answers to everything we might be curious about. But what we have is sufficient. And we must be content with that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us, to our children forever. Now back to our text again. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance Of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we have Mary do something remarkable. Now, it was common practice at the time to anoint the head of an honored guest with oil, and you would typically provide water for their feet. But we see Mary's action here is unique for a good number of reasons. Firstly, we see that what's unique about it is the cost of this perfume. The cost of this perfume. Judas protests what she did because of the incredible value of this perfume. He says, why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, one denarius was the standard day's wage for a laborer, right? One denarius is a, is a full day of working. That's what you'd get if you went and worked in somebody's field uh, for a whole day, right? So 300 Denarii, denarii, right? 365 days in a year, minus the Sabbaths, the holy days. 300 denarii, that is close to a full year's wages for a laborer, right? A full year's worth of working. If you just worked every day that you could for that whole year and saved up all of your money, didn't buy any food, didn't buy anything else, you would now have enough to buy this perfume, Right, a year's wage. So we see this is not your average jar of perfume. This is, as John puts it, expensive ointment, expensive perfume, very costly. And so we see that either Mary and her family were extraordinarily wealthy, or perhaps this was a family heirloom which had been passed down. Either way, not your typical anointing oil 
for a guest, right? You have the average person come and you're not breaking open a full year's worth of wages <laughs> to dump onto their head in one go. And that is what sec- uh, sets Mary's action apart. Secondly, in addition to the cost, is the amount that she poured out on him. Not only does she use this very costly perfume, which you'd think, if it's worth a full year's wages, that one bottle, to just take a little bit of it would be already an amazing show of devotion. But no, she pours it all. Mark's account says that she actually broke this container. She broke it so that she could pour it all out onto Christ. Thirdly, we see she did not merely anoint his head with the oil, which she also did as recorded by Matthew and Mark. But John draws attention here to the fact that she poured out this precious, precious ointment, this valuable possession of hers onto the feet of Jesus. Right? Her most valuable possession, perhaps, poured out, not just on the head, but onto the feet of Christ. Dia Carson notes that by mentioning the anointing of Jesus' feet, there is injected into the description a sense of the woman's self-perceived unworthiness. And we see that continue as not only did she anoint his feet, but she then gets down and wipes them with her hair. All of this shows this action of Mary as a remarkable display of love and devotion to Christ. Right. It's reminiscent of John the Baptist's statement about Jesus. Remember, John had declared himself unworthy to even stoop down and untie the straps of Christ's sandals. Right, the lowliest service that a servant would normally render, John says, I am not worthy to even do that for this man. Mary's action communicates similarly. Here, Lord, perhaps my most costly possession, my most valuable possession, broken, poured out on you, not merely on your head, but on your feet. And then she wipes his feet, not just with a towel, but with her hair. It is a beautiful, self-humbling, Christ-exalting action. Judas sees this and says what Matthew tells us. Many of the disciples were thinking, what a waste. And Matthew has those words. Why this waste? Essentially saying, why pour this all out on Jesus? This could have been put to better use. Judah says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now on the surface, you could maybe think they have a point. You think of what you could do with 300 denarii. Right? That could feed a family for a whole year. That, that's a year's wages for a laborer. You could do a lot with that. And so the disciples pit compassion for the poor against this action of extravagant and unqualified devotion. In the case of Judas, however, the matter is even worse. The case is even worse. Because he made this statement not out of an honest concern for the poor. John gives us the insight. Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was simply covering over his greed, his desire for theft, with a false piety, right? pretending to be generous and compassionate. It was all just a cover for his greed and selfishness, for he's thinking, if this would have been sold, there would now be 300 denarii in this money bag that I carry, that I've been stealing from. Right, this was false piety as a cover for his greed and selfishness. And here we get an insight into the character of Judas. <laughs> as one blogger put it humorously, Judas was apparently pretty shady even before he made his big debut as the worst person in history. 
Right, so we see Judas has the gall to rebuke Mary, who has just done a beautiful thing for Jesus. And he attempts to throw shame upon her, implying that maybe she is not quite as compassionate as he is. Maybe she doesn't quite have the same concern for the poor and the downtrodden as he does. All of this when he himself was just a hypocrite who cared nothing for the poor was just masking over his greed with a false piety. Jesus said of him, it would be better if he had never been born. Then to answer the objection of all the disciples who are still wrestling with this very extravagant display of devotion to Christ, I would ask, was there really a better use for this perfume? Was there truly anything better that Mary could have possibly done with it than to pour this out as an offering to her Savior? In Matthew's account of the story, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are fulfilling the prophecy of Christ nearly 2,000 years later, uh, halfway around the world. Jesus was honored by this. Jesus declared that for all of history, Mary would be honored for this. So we ask again, was it truly a waste? Was there actually any better possible use for this perfume than to be poured out upon Christ? Do you think that Mary currently regrets what she did. Not one bit. There was no possible better use than to pour this out on Christ. That was not a waste. And nothing that we do for Christ will ever be a waste. The world finds it strange and has found it strange that Christians would live as we do And as we have, throughout the centuries, many Christians have given up their lives for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. In some cases, simply refusing to burn a little pinch of incense and to say Caesar is Lord, Kaiser, Kyrios. Young people refusing to compromise, refusing to deny their Savior have gone to early deaths at the hands of persecutors. And the world looks on that and says, What a waste. Why would they dump their lives down the drain like that? Why throw away so much potential? All for some crucified Messiah? Yes. Crucified, buried, raised again on the third day. Now triumphant, reigning, and eternal. Jesus defended the actions of Mary, verse 7. Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's a bit of a complicated uh, phrase there, but Jesus connects what Mary has just done to his own burial. Jesus knows very well that the hour is fast approaching. Jesus knew of the decision of the chief priests and Pharisees, And so as he now turns his face toward Jerusalem, as he's heading back in that direction, he is coming with eyes wide open. As he here now re-enters the public eye, Jesus is preparing to pour out his own life unto death. Jesus is preparing to die even for his enemies. To extend grace even to those who murdered him. And we mentioned earlier that it was judgment for killing Christ that the Jews experienced in 70 AD. Um, I think it's just worth mentioning now, given the war in Israel, given the mixed responses globally, uh, we should point out that at various points in history, hatred and mistreatment of the Jews has been justified because they murdered Jesus. But if we understand the gospel at all, 
Christians must not join in this. For the fact is, God has seen fit to offer his grace even to those who murdered his son and called for his blood to be on the heads of their children. Hear the words of the Apostle Peter preaching at Pentecost to the Jews. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, things like the raising of Lazarus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Right? This Jesus, you crucified. Peter concludes his sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. And this is to the Jews. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We who murdered this Messiah, whom God then raised up and exalted, what shall we do? Are you preaching this to us for a reason? Do you have some hope for us now? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It is true that the Jews, with the help of the Romans, killed Christ. But see here that Christ himself offers grace and forgiveness to the very people who brought about his death. You, Christ killers, receive the grace of Christ. Not just for you, but you and your children, upon whom you said the blood guiltiness for Christ's death should lie. You and your children, grace is offered to you. Forgiveness is offered to you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ poured out his life to save even his enemies. And friends, make no mistake. By nature, we are all counted as God's enemies. If you are in Christ, know that it is only God's grace that has made the difference in you. You are not smarter, godlier, more spiritually sensitive than the next person. You, by nature, were alienated from God, hostile, in slavery to sin, loving sin, loving darkness, hating the light. But if you are in Christ, then you know that Christ poured out his life to save yours. Knowing full well every sin that you would commit, bearing in himself the wrath of God for that sin. So do not be arrogant toward others. We were every bit as alienated from God as those who called for Christ's death. It is the enemy-loving grace of Christ that has reconciled us to him. And take comfort as well. Right? If you are someone who has doubted God's ability to forgive you, right? if you are maybe someone who has seen, I have done so many things, how could God love me? How could Christ forgive me? See and hear the grace of Christ that he extended forgiveness to the very people who put him to death. There is grace even for the Christ killers. There is grace 
for you. And it is this grace that we continue to proclaim to the world. This is our magnificent Savior. And so, my brothers and sisters, in light of who Christ is, in light of what he has done, pouring out his life for yours, know this, that as with Mary's perfume, there is no better use of your life than to be poured out for Christ and his kingdom. We have been made for this to serve God and others. Your life is meant to be spent. It is going to be spent. Your moments on this earth are finite. They will come to an end. Your life is being poured out somewhere. That jar has been broken. It is being tipped over. There is now no delaying it or reversing it. You will be poured out. The decision you get to make is on what? Where? will your life be poured out? In devotion to whom? All of life is worship. There are no neutral actions. We are always serving something, someone. The world says, serve yourself, serve your comforts, serve your ambitions. You only get one life. It's crazy to sacrifice it, to pour it out on Christ. What a waste that would be. But if you know the Savior, then you know, as Mary knew, there is no possible better use for this than to pour it out for the Savior. So brothers and sisters, make the glory of Christ your aim in everything that you do. Pour yourself out for your family. Pour yourself out for your church. Pour yourself out for your community. Pour out yourself for Christ and his kingdom. Worship, build, fight, labor, play, rest, feast, and go to bed tired. Order your life in ways that don't make sense to a world that doesn't know Christ. There is no better possible use. Amen.